Evening. If, uh, if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to uh, Genesis chapter 1? Uh, if you're having trouble finding it, it's on the first page. Um, I'm going to be jumping around all through Scripture. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture. We're going to look at um, a lot of different doctrines, a lot of different teachings. Um, the bulk of what we're going to look at is in Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, tonight, we're going to continue our teaching series through the doctrines of the Baptist faith and message. Uh, we're going to be talking about man. Uh, this is a pretty broad topic. Uh, it embodies a lot. Um, I'm going to try to move as quickly as I can, cover the main points of what we believe about man as written in the Baptist faith and message. Uh, and we're going to examine that through the scriptures, um, and we're going to read the scriptures that our beliefs are founded on. I'm going to read, I'm gonna, first we're going to start by, I'm just going to read through the section, and I'm going to break it down uh, piece by piece. Uh, I do want to set some expectations before I get started, though. Um, because of the nature of this series, and I know others who have preached before me uh, in this series have, have mentioned this as well, uh, because of the nature, this is going to be both instructional and edifying, and I'm going to do my best to make it edifying, um, but there might be times where it feels more like a lecture than a sermon, uh, and that is, that is the, uh, the reality with, with a series like this. Um, but without further ado, let's, let's read this section uh, in the Baptist Faith and Message. It's the section about man, section three. It reads, man is the special creation of God, made in his own image. He created them, male and female, as the crowning work of his creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God and God's creation. In the beginning, man was innocent of sin and was endowed by his creator with freedom of choice. And by his free choice, men sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. Only the grace of God can bring man into holy fellowship and enable man to fulfill the creative purpose of God. The sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image and that Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. So as I said, we're going to go through this section by section and uh, then I'm going to move into a more application-focused exposition towards the end. Um, the founding principle of our belief on man is written in the first sentence. Man is God's special creation, and man was created in the image of God. There are three ways that I think of listed in Scripture that, that man is a special creation. He's set apart from the rest of creation the first is, man is the only part of creation that is given responsibility by God. Okay, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Genesis 1.26 says, 
Then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish and the sea, and over the birds and of the heavens, and over the livestock, all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And a few verses later, in Genesis 1, 28 through 30, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and of every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of this earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So we see from the order of creation, God's special creation in man is given a purpose and a responsibility to rule in the garden, to have dominion over the other creatures in creation. So that is one way that, that man is, is God's special creation. Man is set apart from the rest of creation. The second part is that man is the only part of creation that was made to have communion with God. We see in Genesis chapter 2 that, that God is physically in the garden with Adam and Eve walking with them. We see Adam speaking to God, and there's communion there that doesn't exist with other creation. And the third way that, that, that man is set apart from the rest of creation is man is the only part of creation that is made in the image of God. And this is that second half of that first sentence from the, the Baptist faith and message, that we believe we are the special creation and we believe that man is made in the image of God. We're the only creature in all of creation made in the image of God. If you remember back in February, um, we did a Sunday night series on image of God uh, and Josh Womble and, and Jake um, and Pastor Josh all, all preached through that. And then in the final week, they did a, a colloquium, a four-person um, four panel discussion on the image of God Right? And we discussed what that means and what that looks like. Um, I'm just going to do a quick overview, quick refresh, some of the, the biblical teachings on, on why we believe we're made in the image of God and, and what that means. So Genesis 1, uh, verse 26 says, So God created them in his own image. In his image, God created man. Male and female, he created them. So when we talk about the image of God, that is that is two parts. That is both ontological and it's functional, right? So it is both who a man is and what he does. It is ontological in that God breathed his life into man. That's another thing that, that sets man apart, that God, it says, God breathed life into man. And it is functional we are the functional image of God in that we are created to glorify God and reflect his glory. As we saw earlier in Ephesians 2.10, we were created for good works. We were given responsibility. One way to think about uh, image and image of God is, is the analogy of a statue erected for a king uh, or ruler. Now that statue is intended to reflect the power of, of the ruler, the power of, of the one who it reflects. We are God's creation. We are made in his image to reflect his glory. We are the visible representation of the invisible God. Moving on to the next section. 
A second section of the Baptist faith and message reads, he created them male and female as the crowning work of his creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. All right, so again, we see a belief of man, and now moving just from, from man defined broadly as, as humanity to man and woman, gender. And this idea too is, is rooted in creation, right? Look at Genesis 1, verse 27. It says, so God created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Our belief on gender comes from creation order, from the very beginning of scripture, God's intelligent design, right? God did not create by accident. God does not create without a purpose. God created gender from the very beginning. That was created with a purpose. It was created by design, right? And when Paul writes of the roles of man and woman, both in the household and in the church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or 1 Timothy chapter 2, he does not say this is because of social status. He does not say this is because of what society views of women. He does not say that this is a result of education in in Greco-Roman society. No, he, he says that he builds his argument on gender roles dating back to creation order. He links it to creation order. Now, I don't, I don't have time in this sermon to, to break down every aspect of the biblical teaching of gender. Uh, there will be a section in the, in the Baptist Faith and Message on family. It's one of the last sections that will, will dive more into this. Uh, but I, I do want to say this, is that this is the bare minimum of what we as Southern Baptists believe, right? Um, this is the bare minimum, what is listed in the Baptist faith and message. So the statement is vague, right? And a lot of statements in the Baptist faith and message are vague. And there's a reason for that. That's an intentional um, ambiguity. The reason being is that um, within Southern Baptist communities, within Southern Baptist churches, the local church sets their own doctrines within, within the Baptist faith and message. So what we agree, what we teach, may be slightly different than uh, what, a, what a Southern Baptist church down the road teaches on, on these issues, all falling under the umbrella of the Baptist faith and message. Does that make sense? So the statement of faith, this statement of faith is a doctrinal baseline, right? Something that we all have in common, something that we all agree on, something that we can sign. But it's not a comprehensive teaching, right? So, so this little two sentences on, on, on gender, on man and woman, is, is not a comprehensive teaching uh, on, on biblical sexuality. It's not a comprehensive teaching. Moving on, in, in the next section, uh, it says, in the beginning man was innocent of sin and endowed by his creator with freedom of choice. And by his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. So as we've already talked about, Man was created for communion with God. In the, in the garden, God and Adam walked together. They had communion together. But that communion was contingent on man's obedience. Adam was given both a responsibility and a commandment. He was told to rule over the earth, have dominion over the earth, and also do not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis 3, tempted by Satan... 
Eve ate of the fruit, and she gave to Adam, who ate as well, right? And, and thus, we see the first time there's a, a, a commandment broken, and this brought sin into the world, right? And as a result of their sin, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, separated from the tree of life, and broken from their communion of God. This brought both sin and death into the world. And it leads us to our next section. And the next section reads, Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. So as a result of the sin, sin entered the world through one man, but it is inherited by all of us who are born as men, as, in, as heirs of Adam. We inherit that sin. And again, this, I, like I just mentioned, the, the Baptist faith and message, it, it's a baseline of what SBC churches uh, must believe and teach. Personally, this is the one section uh, within the section of man that I find particularly weak. Uh, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that. <laughs> Hope I'm allowed to have that opinion. I think this is really weak. Uh, so I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that. It's true, but it's weak. Okay? So it says, Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God, fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature and environment inclined towards sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. To me, my belief is that we are more than just inclined towards sin. We live in more than just an environment of sin. We do have an inclination towards sin, and we do live in an environment of, of sin. But by our birth, through Adam's sin that we have inherited, it's not just an inclination, but it's we are totally depraved. We are totally without the ability to please God. And I think that scripture backs that up, right? Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Romans 8 verse 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Left to our own devices, we are without hope. We are lost in our sin. Because of sin, that works two ways, right? It is an inheritance from Adam. We have an inherited sin. And it is a collection of all of our works. Right? You notice that, that verse in, in Romans 6, verse 23, it says the wages of sin is death. Think of that like a wage that a worker earns. Right? If, I, if, I, if I, Jake hires me for, to come paint his house and we agree upon a wage that he pays me for the job, I work and I earn that wage. Right? This gives the idea that all of our works are earning us, is what we are earning because of our work, is death. And so that is something that we have earned and it is something that we have inherited, is death through Adam and through our works. 
And so, with, because of our sin, we are in a hopeless state. We are in a hopeless state, lost at our sin. Now, this would be a terrible place to ever end a sermon, right? If I just said, we're in a terrible place, hopelessly lost in sin, that's all. That's, that's what man is. That would be a terrible place to end a sermon. Fortunately, that's not where, where we have to end a sermon. That's not where we have to end a lesson, right? Because I would amend my statement to say that we are in a terrible state without the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ. The next section leads straight into the next section of the Baptist faith and message, which says that only the grace of God can bring man into his holy fellowship and enable man to fulfill the creative purpose of God because man is totally in debt to sin and without hope to save himself. The gift of salvation can only come through Jesus Christ. If we read on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And it is by grace that you have been saved. By the grace of God, we have been saved by sin. And man's communion with God can be restored. That is the gospel in its purest form. That is the best hope and the best news that we can have as Christians. That we aren't just simply lost in a hopeless state. That that, that sin that we have inherited from Adam, we can receive a new inheritance from Jesus Christ and through the grace that is offered by his blood. That inheritance is life and life in Christ. In the final section of the Baptist Faith and Methods, teaching on man It says, the sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image and that Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. Now, this is the only section that that is the conclusion of all other sections, right? It is the only section that turns from inward to outward, right? Every other section, every other statement uh, within, within the section on man talks about man and our relationship to either God or to creation. This one turns horizontal, right? It turns to our relationship to other men, our relationship to one another, from inward to outward. Because, because God created man in his own image, because Christ died for his man, we are to treat every person with dignity, respect, and love. Every other belief about man, right? That, that we are created in the image of God and that, that Christ died for man, that should give us a sanctity for, for human life. That should empower us to look at one another and see fellow image bearers. So in application, I have, I have two points. I have two points that I want to talk about in application. So wh- what do we believe about man as, as, as Baptists? What does the, the Baptist faith and message teach about man? What does the Bible teach about, about man? And I have two applications, right? Because man is created in the image of God, we serve a higher purpose, right? When, when the Pharisees 
confronted Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 15. It says, the Pharisees went and they plotted on how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and that you teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you, not, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they marveled and they went away. That coin was in the inscription and the likeness of Caesar. I think Jesus used that for a very specific purpose, right? When he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God. We are made in the likeness and the image of God. So our lives are called to be rendered to God. We serve a higher master than anything on this earth because from the very beginning of creation, we were created in the image of God. The second point of application is because man is created in the image of God as God's special creation, we should treat all men with dignity and respect. It should, it should change how we view one another. It should change how we view society as a whole. It should change how we watch the news and the opinions we formulate and the things we say, the things we think about other people. Viewing others as image bearers should greatly impact Christian ethics and civil engagement. It's the reason that we are pro-life. It's the reason that pro-life should be for life. For the sanctity of human life means the sanctity of the human life from the womb until the grave. It is why that we should care for the widows and the orphans, as it tells us in James that this is true religion. It is why we should care for those in foster care. It is why we should engage in programs like this church does in Dare to Care that take care of the poor and those in need. It's why we should care for the homeless and the drug addicted, even when that's uncomfortable for us. And it's why we should grieve the death of Manuel Loggins, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Alton Sterling, Philandro Castile, Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and countless others. It's why we should grieve those. We should feel that. It's also why we should grieve the death of David Dorn, the former police officer and captain in St. Louis who was killed this week. We should grieve that. We should feel that. Those are human beings made in the image of God. As Christians, we should care about societal change. Not as separate from the gospel, not as, not as separate from the gospel, but as a part of the gospel. Knowing that we are called to love each other here and now. And our future hope may be in Christ. Our only hope may be in Christ, in life and in death. But we are called to love each other now. We are called to fight for societal change. But fighting for societal change from a Christian perspective, from a Christian worldview, cannot be separated from love and hope. To illustrate this point, I want to talk about two men. I want to talk about two men who wanted to change the world. And not just wanted to change the world, but two men who did change the world for all intents and purposes. 
they both had a lot in common, especially in their early life and their background. One was the son of a poor cobbler, a shoemaker, and the other was the son of a poor farmer. They both grew up poor and in poverty. Both of them from an early age had to go to work as children to try to assist their family's living situations just to put food on the table. Both of them were trained in seminaries. Both of them stood out as exceptional students in seminary school. And both of them saw injustice in the world and they swore to end it and they swore to be the change. One would go on, I would argue, to lead the most influential change in religious thought in the past 1,000 years. The other would go on to lead, I would argue, the, big, the biggest political change seen in the last 500 years. One was Martin Luther, the leading voice of the Protestant Reformation. The other was Joseph Stalin, one of the leading revolutionaries of Russia's October Revolution. The second and most notorious dictator of the Soviet Union. A man who, by some estimates, murdered 20 million people of his own people. That's three times more than were killed in the Holocaust. And the biggest difference was not just an outcome, but Luther's Reformation was built on hope and dignity and truth. While Stalin's revolution abandoned hope, abandoned dignity, and abandoned truth. Luther saw the abuse in the Catholic Church. He saw common people being manipulated by the powerful clergy who had become obsessed with power and money corrupted by sin and greed. And Luther's legacy is remembered as a legacy of truth. It is a movement by which we sit here today in a Protestant church studying a Protestant statement of beliefs. This is by no means saying that Luther was without his flaws you've read about the life of Luther or studied him, uh, you know he had major flaws in his life. God used him. God has a tendency to use people with flaws. A professor who once said that, that God makes straight lines with crooked sticks. God used him, and God used his movement for hope, for truth, for dignity. Stalin, he also saw abuse. He saw the abuse of Tsar, of the Tsar, under the rule of Tsar Nicholas II. He saw ordinary working class people starve and struggle to make ends meet while the oligarchs in Kiev, Moscow, or St. Petersburg hoarded wealth and resources. He remembered nights as a child going to bed without food, not knowing where his next meal would come from. All the illness he faced growing up as a child in poverty. He even had an untreated case of smallpox that became so bad because there was no doctor in his village that he had scars for the rest of his life on his face. And all this, because he had no access to a doctor. But, his, but in his desire for justice, in his desire for equality, he abandoned hope. He abandoned dignity. And in a worldview where the ends justified the means and the violence was just a means to an end, he would murder, jail, and exile anyone who stood in his path. When he finally took power of, over Russia in 1922, after the death of Vladimir Lenin, separated from truth, removed from dignity, removed from hope, and he be, the man who began 
his young career as a revolutionary seeking to end a deadly regime would become a leader of the most deadly regime in modern history. He became the very thing that he swore to defeat because he was separated from the truth that all men are created in the image of God and that all men deserve to be treated with respect and love as image bearers. And power has an interesting way of perverting human justice. And power separated from truth, hope, and dignity will always pervert justice. A former politician, even from this very state, once put it like this, people robbed of hope are robbed of their basic human dignity. People robbed of their dignity are ultimately robbed of their humanity. And people robbed of their humanity make inhumane decisions involving themselves, their families, and their communities. So Christians, if we fight for change, let us do so in the name of love, hope, and truth. We cannot forget any of those three things. It is why we fight for pro-life movements, but we not do so in a violent way. Because we believe that that every baby in the womb is, is knitted together by God and is an image bearer of God, right? We believe that and we fight for those people. And also, the women with an unwanted pregnancy are also made in the image of God. And so we should love them and care for them and be a witness to them, to be a light in a dark situation to them and to all people. We live in a conflict as Christians today. We live in a conflict of what already is and what is not yet. We talked about sin and and grace that covers sin. And we have that grace. But there's a future glory that has not come yet. And grace and glory go hand in hand. Right? The, the famous Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks said it like this. He said, grace and glory differ very little. One is the seed, the other is the flower. Grace is glory militant, and glory is grace triumphant. Church, we have received the grace of God that covers our sins, that restores our communion with God. We have received that grace. And we will, there will come a day that God will glorify us with him. We will be glorified. God's creation, God's new creation has been inaugurated. It was inaugurated when Christ rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. And Christ's new creation will be consummated when he returns to rule and reign on this earth. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for um, your word, your grace. Thank you that that we are able to to study your word and we have the freedom to meet here, to assemble brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that that this, this series would not just be informative, but it would also be edifying to us as believers. It would challenge us as as believers, uh, and it would grow us as believers. And we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.